Hey, I'm Justine. Hey, I'm Josh. Ooh. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I thought you were Joshua. Your I whole thing Joshua. was like, you want Joshua. Joshua. Yeah, I know. Next I'm, at SATX.com. I, I lost worry. the fight. I was fighting the good fight, and I lost the good fight, and now I'm dead. So, are you, so who are you? <laughs> hey, I'm Joshua. No, I just want to... <laughs> do you want to be Josh, or do you want I to want be, be Joshua? Joshua? Okay. Okay. So why are you calling yourself Josh? It was a mistake, oh. and I'm human. <laughs> let's have a talk now i mean open mics are like therapy with an audience yeah this is like therapy but with an open mic yeah and we're the hosts of (laughs) what so our next guest is a self-proclaimed non-professional audio engineer he can be found on tuesday nights at pig pen here in san antonio yes it is tuesday yes pig pen yes sorry tuesday which happens on Tuesdays. Yes. Very clever. It was a fantastic conversation. We learned a lot about music history. I feel like we took a, a magical mystery tour. Oh, yeah. Music, music history. Music history into Camp Misinclined at Kerrville Folk Festival. Yeah. And we learned about uh, Land Rush. Which, IT. And IT. It was, it's a crazy, it's a crazy ride. I hope you guys enjoy it. This is Olin Sluter. You are listening to the Who's Next SATX podcast. A special thanks goes out to Dulce Sueños Coffee at 1904 Fredericksburg Road for letting us use their space to record this episode. Thank you for coming out, Olin. Olin is running sound relatively recently, although it's been a while now. Um, for the Tuesday night open mic at the Pig Pen. I'm sure you do other things, but that's why I wanted you here. <laughs> sure. We'll get into the other things for sure. But um, there is an open mic on Tuesday nights, and this is an unqualified... Tuesday. Yeah, Tuesday <laughs> at the Pig Pen. That's right. This un- is my unqualified belief. I don't have any actual research to back this up. Uh, that it's the longest running open mic in San Antonio. That, that's what the host John Whipple claims. And I believe it was going on, it started in almost Barmacy. Uh, actually predates that. It predates uh, almost Barmacy. Butch, Butch Morgan uh, at Casbeers on Blanco. Okay. The old Casbeers on Blanco. Uh, so this is going back, at this point, probably close to 20 years, uh, would wow. be my guess. And of course, you know, yeah. checking with uh, John or Butch. But my understanding is it actually, uh, you know, this group of musicians, you know, John and Butch and Robar and all those folks, that it, it actually dates back to Casbeers, uh, then ended up at uh, almost Barmacy. Mm-hmm. And Butch, you know, living out in Divine, it was just too much for him to come in every week. And he asked John to take it over. And then at some point it moved to, I want to say about seven years ago or so, it moved to uh, to the pig bed. And so when did you come in to start working sound? About two years ago. Okay. Uh, I actually, I, I'm not a musician. Uh, I'm not a professional sound engineer or, or sound guy. My background's actually in IT. Okay. And I actually got into location recording about 20 years ago. And then did a little bit of that here and there just as, you know, as an avocation. Then about eight years ago, I started to go out to Kerrville. And I was doing recording uh, during Land Rush, sitting out there, you know, all the vehicles lined up waiting to go in and claim their, claim their land. And someone came by and saw me recording and asked if I wanted to be on the recording crew for the Kerrville Folk Festival. I said, yeah, absolutely. I just gotten divorced and uh, the wife wasn't a camper, but they're like, yeah, you could come camp free for 18 days. So mm-hmm. that sounds like they're a cool. deal. And uh, so uh, that's really when I started to pick up not just the recording, but actually, you know, mixing. Uh, because we would actually, although there was a separate sound company that did the, uh, the actual sound for Kerrville, the recording crew actually had their own board and did their own mix down, their own two track, and then also multi track recording. Uh, and so I met Robar there. Okay. And here, here's why I bring it up back around to Teens Day. I met Robar there. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of interesting because I had actually been a big fan of Butch Morgan and The Blast yeah, uh, back in the 80s, which uh, Robar has been the bass player, you know, with, with Butch for at this point, you know, 40, 50 years. And so I met Robar there 
And so we became friends. And then I, I did that for a few years. And uh, I would just pick up gigs every now and then for friends. You know, someone say that, you know, run sound at a certain club. Well, hey, I got to go out of town. Can you pick this up mm-hmm. for me? And so I did that. Well, about two years ago, uh, Robark just kind of calls me out of the blue uh, and goes, hey, would you like to come you know, help us out? And I was like, yeah, sure. And so I wandered on over and uh, they put me right to work. So that's how I kind of got into Tunes Day. And uh, it's been been close to two years uh, that I've been uh, out helping them. And it, it's something like I said, I, it, it's an avocation. It's, it's, it's not a, it's not really my job. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they, they do pay me. I mean, I am part of the crew. And and so I, so I do get my cut, you know, of, of their performance fees, you know, for the Santino Rhythm section. Mm-hmm. And uh, the major reason I do it, though, is, uh, you know, to hang out with friends and uh, even more so than that, free tacos and free beer. Hey, man, <laughs> that's, that's not a bad Sold. place for both yeah. of those things. Um, just for everybody listening, hopefully there's an everybody who's the listening. tens of people listening the, the right tens now. of people listening right now uh location recording yeah location recording uh that's essentially field recording it's it's where you actually go do recording out in some place uh you know not in a studio uh in the case of uh, uh Kerrville we actually did have a recording room that we ran cables uh, from a splitter uh from the front of house well actually from uh, uh really the monitors into our own 32 track board yeah and we would mix down and we would do a two track recording and a multi track recording at the same time. Uh, so it's essentially, you know, simply put, it's recording in a place other than in a studio environment. Mm. Uh, and it could be anything from uh, just going out in nature to record the sounds of nature all the way to, you know, live music, yeah. uh, recording live music. Gotcha. It, it can also loosely apply to people doing, say, a video or something out on location and, and recording it. Although there you're starting to, you know, kind of inch more towards, uh, you know, almost almost studio type recordings. Because quite often they'll bring in a big recording van or recording truck mm-hmm. you know, that's yeah. essentially a mobile studio. Gotcha. And then just one more piece of work for Merriam-Webster. Uh, what is Land Rush? Land Rush is the stage before Kerrville Folk Festival where uh, everybody lines up in the big parking lot, uh, you know, kind of first come, first serve. They've purchased these stakes in order to uh, basically when they open the gates, and this is the weekend before Kerrville that they do this. And uh, they then drive out into the Kerrville, uh, you know, the Quiet Valley Ranch, and they put their stake in place to basically, you know, claim their bit of Kerrville. Gotcha. Uh, huh. You know, the Kerrville Folk Festival. That, that's Land Rush. Well, that's awesome. So judging by the conversation we had beforehand, you seem to be a pretty big Texas songwriter fan. I, I have very eclectic uh, taste, really. Uh, but yeah, no, I do. I, I, I definitely, I am a Texan. I was born here in San Antonio. Uh, yeah, music's been a constant in my life. Uh, my father is originally from the Panhandle, from the town of Happy, Texas. And, <laughs> of course uh, there's a Happy, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> the town without a frown. Uh, that's amazing. <laughs> we have this recording. Yeah, population 10,000, but that includes uh, 9,500 head of cattle. <laughs> so uh, the only way you know you're passing uh, happy is there's five grain silos that have H, A, P, P, Y. Oh, my God. <laughs> of course. Other than that, you wouldn't even know you're passing by the town. But in any case, uh, so my father uh, grew up in the panhandle in, in the late 50s. Mm-hmm. And so he was real heavy into Buddy Holly and uh, you know, Buddy Knox and uh, Sonny Curtis. It was generally referred to as Tex-Mex at that time because a lot of the recording was done in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, but y'all also hear it referred to as West Texas Bop. And you know, it's very, very much a combination of rock and roll, rockabilly. And so he was real heavy into it. And so that was really my first, my, my, my father was actually the one that influenced me as far as, uh, as becoming just a lover of music. And he didn't have super eclectic taste. He was mostly, like I said, rock and roll, uh, you know, country, Western, but both types of music, country and Western. 
and uh, <laughs> rock and roll. Nice. And I, so, so I mean, from a very young age, I remember you know, listening to like Buddy Holly in particular. Mm-hmm. And, and Buddy Holly is still kind of my touchstone uh, for, for a lot of Texas music. But over the years, I kind of expanded those interests and got real heavy into classical music for a period, got real heavy into avant-garde and experimental composers, you know, John Cage and uh, Terry Riley and you know, the German Carl Heitz Stockhausen. And I was an army brat. So we were living in Germany uh, during that period. Well, when I came back to the United States, it's like everybody just kind of looked at me odd when I would talk about John Cage and Carl Heitz <laughs> Stockhausen, you know, when they would ask what I, I like to listen to. And uh, then I know you need to listen to this Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath. (laughs) So I did expand my horizons into that. But along the way, there was still always that undercurrent of Texas music. Mm -hmm. So I I did start to also around that same time in the 70s, did start listening to uh, the Flatlanders. I happened to have an eight track you know, of of their one and only production. So Butch Hancock, Jimmy Dale Gilmore, Joe Ely. Um, of course, you have Butch Hancock's incredible songwriter, uh, Jimmy Dale Gilmore's incredible songwriter. Uh, Joe Ely's a, a very good songwriter, but he tended to cover a lot of, in particular, Butch Hancock's music. And again, continued my love of Buddy Holly. Uh, right. Then that slowly expanded into, you know, first heard Towns Van Zandt in the, mm. in the late 70s. Uh, I knew of his association with Guy Clark, started listening to Guy Clark. You know, and then start just adding a little bit, of this, a little bit of that, and and so my, my tastes are extremely eclectic. I mean, I will listen. There's there's very little music I will not listen to, <laughs> uh, and and get some enjoyment from, uh, because I, I think there's something to learn, you know, from almost every genre of music. Yeah, man, preach. What's your favorite John Cage piece? <laughs> I, I am partial to four minutes and thirty three seconds, believe it or not. <laughs> and uh, interesting bit of trivia about that: it actually has no name. It's actually a piece that has no name. And, and, and people call it four minutes and 33 seconds. But Cage actually intended it to be to take the name of whatever duration it was performed as. Mm-hmm. And it just so happens it's, it's actually a piece in three parts, three movements with the single musical instruction of tacit. Tacit. Mm-hmm. Tacit means to be silent. And he actually on the score writes that. When it is performed, you know, each each movement can be formed or each part can be performed for as long as you want. And so it could actually, in theory, take on, I mean, you could do a 20-minute version of it, but as long as it's in three movements. And uh, it originally was uh, done by a pianist in the 50s, and he signaled each movement by kind of the exact opposite of what you would expect, he would have the piano cover, the keyboard cover open, and he would, to start the movement, close the piano cover, the keyboard cover, and then sit there with a timer. And then when the movement ended, he would raise the keyboard cover. Yeah. And then he would wait for a moment, and then he would close the keyboard cover. And of course, like I said, three, three movements. And like I said, it added up to four minutes and 33 seconds. And so it's become the name of it, but it's actually a piece with no name. Um, I'm partial to the dubstep remix. Um, No, it's I asked that because I studied music in in college and all of that. And in our part two of the history of world music, which could go on for 10 classes at least, um, we do get to John Cage. And usually that's like the only piece that's talked about. Oh, he has so, so much other stuff. But to me, that piece is interesting and it's kind of special to me because it it is in many respects the first ambient piece. Mm -hmm. And, And that's really the whole thing about it is it's in a sense, it was only... I can't say it was only valid the first time it was performed, but it only had its full effect yeah. the first time it was performed. Because what you ended up happening is, you know, that first movement, I think, was only like 30 seconds. It was pretty short. Mm. And so people kind of sat there for the first 30 seconds. Well, when it got into the second movement and the guy's not playing the piano, that's when the crowd started like, oh, what's what's going on? What's even on? And that's where the ambient part came in. It was actually the noise of the crowd. And so now when you actually hear it perform, I mean, you can you can go on YouTube and you can find performances of it done by symphony orchestras. But the crowd is silent because they know 
you know, it's this, you know, this composition. And so you don't have the crowd talking and all that. So to me, it, it's lost a little bit in later performances because you don't have that kind of not really shock, but surprise and, and yeah. the, the noise of the crowd and, and all that. See, in videos that I've seen, I've always, I've only seen like a pianist performance and they did the, exactly what you said um, with the original performer. And the audience started laughing after a good 10 seconds, 15 seconds of silence. Mm -hmm. And then people just started kind of laughing uncomfortably, like they didn't really know what to do. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I I never considered that. My my sentiment towards the piece is, you know, you're listening for what's in the silence. Um, but I hadn't considered that the audience reaction is part of that ambiance. Very and much. so whenever yeah. I first saw that video, I was like, what are they doing? Like, they can't hear the silence. <laughs> um, <laughs> you should be listening right now. But, you know, <laughs> but, but the, uh, but, you know, now hearing you, I'm like, oh yeah, the, the audience reaction is part of the piece. Like, you know, how would yeah. you respond well, to silence? Yeah, it's, uh, well, and, and that actually opened up, you know, an interest in ambient music. Uh, you know, I started listening to like a lot of Brian Eno for example, you know, is who is probably as far as more modern, if you will, uh, you know, into the sixties and seventies, Oh yeah, you know, was known for his ambient music, uh, music for elevators, yeah, you know, music for airports were some of the, the albums he put out and, um, you know, started getting real heavy into, um, there was a movement in Germany starting in the late 60s, uh, 68, 69, then going into the early seventies, the British kind of in a sort of derogatory a way called it Krautrock. The Germans themselves call it cosmic music, cosmic music. And it was essentially these Germans kind of uh, who had been playing or trying to emulate, you know, the American and British, you know, R&B and uh, rock and blues of the 60s, just deciding to go, you know, we're just going to do our own thing. And it got real heavy into improvisation. And so you have bands like Can and Faust and Amundul, uh, Kraftwerk is probably one of the better known bands of that period, Tangerine Dream, groups like that. Those last two, Kraftwerk, Tangerine Dream, also what was called the Berlin School, uh, which you had uh, Emanuel Gottsching, you had uh, Klaus Schulze and uh, Tangerine Dream started to go from very improvisational music with largely acoustic or a largely uh, traditional style instruments, guitars, drums, what have you, but started to go electronic. Mm -hmm. And so you had the rise of this uh, electronic music that was largely very atmospheric and mm -hmm. still, still a lot of improvisation and, and Tangerine Dream still, for example, kept a guitar. Uh, Andrew Froso would play guitar you know, combined with, you know, the electronics, mm -hmm. but it was this very, very atmospheric, almost ambient style of music. And, and I fell very much in love with it. And I am German. So I had actually been exposed to that music, you know, when I was in Germany, but didn't start collecting the music until I got back uh, to the U.S. at 77. Uh, and I started picking up whatever vinyl I could. And I kind of kicked myself, you know, I wish I would have been, you know, still 13, 14 in Germany. And I could have picked up all that music, yeah. you know, for pennies on the dollar compared to what I was paying for it over here, you know, as imports. But so, yeah, so ambience, ambient is one genre that I, I really do enjoy. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I probably am. But um, that genre of music is the catalyst for like modular synthesis, right? Because I feel like that's where all that started. They used it uh, heavily, but uh, modular synthesis actually started in, in the, well, really it goes back to the 50s, but as far as say Bob Moog yeah, yeah. Uh, would be in the 60s. And it was actually fairly uh, classical composers, people like Wendy Carlos, you know, uh, shoot, I'm forgetting his first name, Deutsch was his last name, uh, you know, folks like that who were actually fairly classical style composers. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Karl Stockhausen uh, actually did uh, additive synthesis where he would take sine wave generators and actually build up waveforms by just adding together a bunch of, of sine wave generators. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the concept of synthesis and all that, and in particular the modular synthesizer, in particular the classic Moog synthesizer, had it start really in the 60s. And those artists that I was just talking about, you very much adopted that. Yeah, you, know, you, you had, for example, Switched on Bach come out in the late 60s and people saw you know how incredible that could be. And a gentleman by the name of... Uh, Florian Fricka, 
uh, with a band called Popol Vuh, actually bought one of the first Moog synthesizers, yeah. uh, one of the large uh, Model 3s in Germany. Yeah. And it later went on to uh, you know, a couple of artists. You know, it ended up being sold to this artist, that artist, and, and got passed around. And so uh, they, they really were building upon, they didn't so much start it. They were building upon things that Carl Stockhausen was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they saw what was being done, again, primarily to recreate classical pieces with electronics and uh, then used it and brought it into this uh, really improvised, ambient, very experimental, uh, almost a jazz fusion, mm-hmm. uh, you know, jazz uh, rock fusion style uh, with, with heavy improvisation. Yeah. The names that you were mentioning, I always hear them like a lot of the people that I follow online, they have friends that are heavy into modular synthesis because it kind of is adjacent to this world of effects, which guitar all you're doing is controlling effects and we're hacks compared to the modular synthesis people. And they always mention the names you were mentioning. Well, and, and they became incredibly influential. I mean, you, especially you look at groups like Kraftwerk, uh, you know, almost everybody name checks Kraftwerk that's in the uh, electronica and dance music and mm-hmm. uh, you know, EDM. They're always one of the names that pop up as influences in that genre. You know, some of these other bands can, in particular, extremely influential as far as, uh, you know, other bands, they'll always name check can. And so uh, a lot of these groups ended up being, even though it's, it's a really small kind of niche genre that most people have never really heard of or really aren't familiar with, they hear them kind of by that, by people saying, oh, I was heavily influenced by the band Noi, you know, the, the style of drumming. You know, they had this very mechanical sounding almost style of drumming, a guy by the name of uh, Klaus Dinger mm-hmm. uh, out of Dusseldorf. And it became known as Motorik because, I mean, it was almost like a machine sound. Mm-hmm. Like it was so, his timing was so on that it sounded like a drum machine. And so, so that kind of also, you know, influenced later bands, you know, to do that kind of real, almost mechanical style of drumming mm-hmm. uh, that just drives the song forward. Mm-hmm. I think it's, uh, it's interesting that you said you uh, began a career in IT because you have all this musical <laughs> knowledge. Like, I feel like I'm sitting next to a music historian right now, or like, <laughs> right. you know, dramaturg type I love type this person. took this turn. Like, I w- this is awesome. Yeah, it's not what I expected <laughs> at all. Um, you know, you talked about Buddy Holly and these these early, um, like, rock and roll and Texan musicians. It seems like that kind of kickstarted your musical journey, whether you went um, into the music profession or not. And Buddy Holly and all of these musicians kind of kickstarted the rock and roll genre. So it's interesting to see your personal musical journey along with the Western um, American musical yeah, journey. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it kind like, of follows along with it. And, then, very, you, very and cool. then you went into IT. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and yeah, that's true. And, and the thing is, I, I, I've never been, I never considered myself really uh, very good at at music, you know, performing or, mm. or singing. And it's kind of interesting because I, I kind of wondered about why, why is that? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm so in love with music. I mean, it's such an integral part of my life as far as I've always got music playing. I've always, you know, and it was my way to unwind, you know, at the end of the day and, and what have you. And literally just the other day, I was thinking about it. And what I remembered was in the fifth grade, I, I was an army brat, so we moved a lot and we were living in Lovington, New Mexico, fifth grade and had to take music class Mm -hmm. and they were going to perform Handel's Messiah in this fifth grade music class okay for Christmas (laughs) yeah not not all of it right just the hallelujah bit yeah yeah yeah, the hallelujah (laughs) chorus and all that and uh so everybody tried out for the for the chorus for the, the the choral part of it and I was like no here, take these blocks, <laughs> you know, pink, <laughs> pink, pink. Yeah. And so I was really, in a sense, kind of, you know, I was really excited to be part of this, but then they were like, no, you can't sing. And oh so it, it kind of stuck with me. So I always thought, you know, from a very young age that I had no Somebody musical abilities. Somebody for you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought oh, I wow. had no musical abilities. And so even though I love music so much, and so I never really pursued performing music. Mm-hmm. And it was really kind of 
interesting uh, because when we were in Germany from 74 to 77, uh, I had a, my mom's German and I had a German aunt that used to always travel back and forth between West Germany and East Germany to visit family. Because when Germany was divided, we right. had family that ended up on both sides of the of the Iron Curtain. And this one time, about 1976, she brought back a East German uh, jazz guitar. That's an archtop guitar, a uh, single pickup. Um, and she said, I had to learn how to play it. That was, that was the deal. She was bringing this back to me, uh, for me, and I had to learn to play it. Well, even at that point, I was like, well, you know, I don't know. I'm not really a musician. And it ended up getting put in a closet and I never learned to play it. And I still have that guitar. And I actually ended up and had some work done and I had set up and I have finally started hey. to learn to play this guitar that I've, that's awesome that I've now owned for, geez, what is it? 76, uh, you know, 40, 47 <laughs> years. years. Yeah. Uh, and so it's this 60 year old East German guitar that was made in a region that was famous for stringed instruments, uh, Thuringia. And so I, I have finally at the age of 60, decided I'm, I am going to start to play uh, a little bit. Now, at some point in the future, look for me to get up on stage Tuesday. Oh, there nice. you go. And plink out some, <laughs> plink out some songs. Um, That's awesome. So I, I, I will. And what's interesting is the impetus for that is, you know, all these musical festivals that I attend, you know, like Kerrville, like Woodsy, like, you know, the old Fisher Fest, which is now a new folk old folk up in Fisher. A big part of it is not so much the performances on stage. You know, those are great. And you know, everybody, you know, obviously loves those. To me, the biggest part of it are the song circles at night around the yeah, camps. That's what I did the, the two times that I went. I was barely at the stage. Exactly. I'll, I'll go see a handful, you know, like, like I'm not sure what the number of people that play Kerrville. I mean, you know, 18 nights, four or five acts, uh, two different stages, dozens and dozens of performers. I'll go see five. But then every night, you know, I'm there. Yeah, can't miss inclined in the song circle as a spectator or recording. I, I rec I've recorded a few a uh, few of these. Um, you know, or I'll wander around, you know, to other camps where people I know, uh, and sit in and listen again as a spectator. And so what kind of drove me finally deciding I was going to, to learn to play the guitar was, uh, I, I wanted to be, you know, a part of the song circle beyond being just a spectator or yeah. recording it. Yeah, I wanted to actually perform a piece. Heck yeah. So so that that's kind Good of drove luck, me man. to do that. That's, yeah. That's, that's awesome. I am yeah. pulling for you. I'm officially a fan of this journey. This is <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's awesome. I'm glad that you got you like went through the effort to was it pricey to to mm -hmm. restore and set up the guitar? Were there any major problems with Not it? Not at all. It, it really it, well, there is actually a story there. <laughs> there is a story there. The decision to actually learn to play it was uh I wanted to, it, it had been at my mother's house for, for decades, sitting in the back of a closet. And I had loosened the neck uh, before I, I, it got stored away for you mm -hmm. know, like, like you know, 20 years. And uh, my mother was cleaning out the closet and she came across it and she said, do you want this thing? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I want it. So I took it to this place that were supposed to be experts in acoustic guitars. This guitar is interesting because it has a hidden magnetic pickup that's under the fretboard uh, near the neck, uh, basically at the base of the neck, kind of an area that overhangs the body of the guitar. And there's just, the fretboard's just blank. There's no, there's no frets. Well, underneath that is a magnetic pickup. Mm. And then it goes out and in the heel of the guitar, there's a banana plug. And so when I took it in, I was like, okay, well, the neck needs to be tightened. It's a floating bridge. So the bridge needs to be adjusted, intonation, blah, 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 blah. You know, all these things, you know how to do it. I even included an adapter for banana plug to quarter inch. So I, I call them up. Hey, guitar ready? Yeah, it's ready. Come get it. I go to pick it up. And they had, rather than using this adapter, they had drilled out one of the banana plugs uh, jacks and had put in a eighth inch, an eighth inch, an eighth inch, you know, mini plug, basically mini phono plug, uh, and wired it both leads to that single plug. 
and then had glued down the bridge. I and had you know then adjusted you know the the uh, the action. I went a fairly low action and fairly light string starting out, and I was so upset. Oh, it's no. it's not that the guitar was super super valuable. I'm tearing up just hearing about this. Yeah, it's, it's a definitely a unicorn. You don't see them around. It's it's a company called Hernsdorf. Mm-hmm. So you definitely don't see them in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've only seen one for sale online in Germany for like about 700 euros. So it's not a super super valuable guitar, but mm-hmm. it has a credible sentimental value because it came from my German aunt, and I was just so upset. I ended up just putting it aside again. Oh man, uh, and it so it sat for another 20 years, and then I was like, you know to heck with this. I, I, I really do want to learn to play. Let me find an actual luthier that knows what they're doing and uh, took it into him. And he was able to basically reverse the damage nice. as best as he could. So it's now back to the banana plug. He uh, adjusted the bridge. He put a new uh, bridge piece on it. Just the intonation is perfect now. And nice. so it, it kind of renewed, you know, me wanting to pick it up because I was just so upset for a while that I just, I, I just, I didn't even want to touch With it. With that kind yeah. of like just story behind it, I can't imagine anybody yeah. not being upset. That's, yeah, yeah. that's crazy. Uh, eighth of an inch plug is the size of headphones for everybody listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like the, your classic little headphone jack. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm just saying this so people know because yeah. there's gonna, presumably people are not going to banana plug. Yeah, banana plug is that. an old, old style. You see it quite often on the back of speakers in the U.S. And a banana plug actually has two plugs. Okay. Yeah, you know, positive and a negative. Right. right. Okay, I see it, it now. I, I was just trying uh, to yeah. figure out what, okay. And for, for whatever reason, that was the standard in, you know, Germany uh, at that time was to use banana plugs rather than the classic quarter inch instrument plug, you know, that most uh, musicians are familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. Sorry, I'm doing a lot of dictionary oh, work today. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> this is uh, this this interview too quickly took a turn straight into her wheelhouse. I'm like, I'm just like, all right, I'm just gonna do logistical work today. <laughs> oh, I had I had a question. I forgot what it was. Um, it seems like, you know, my original comments about you being you having this extensive knowledge of all of this music and these genres, and you know, not getting into it when you were younger because of this this thing that happened to you, which is super unfortunate. And it's really more anecdotal evidence that I've observed of the, you know, you don't really understand the power your words have to other people. And that's especially true for people who work with, you know, who work with kids. So educators and uh, people who work in daycare and doctors and and all of these jobs that are customer facing and, and especially working with children. Um, sometimes your words can, can really I affect people. I have very people. few regrets and one of them is, one of them involves a situation really? like that. Yeah. I have one specific instance that I could have, I wish I could have back Yeah, because I said something that I meant to be just so you know, just so you're prepared. Yeah. And I don't know for sure if this person stopped taking her career seriously because I said it or not. All I know is I didn't see her perform much after that. And she was incredibly, incredibly talented. He's talking about me. Uh, yeah, it was totally you. No, no, no. It was a wonderful, uh, wonderful, wonderfully talented uh, college station singer songwriter. It was out there when I was building the band that I was building. Um, and we ended up doing a show opening up. She was opening up for us and we were opening up for another band. And my guitarist, who loves, who's now my lawyer, he loves to, he's a ranter. Like, and if he, if he buys into what you're saying, he will turn it into like a, like passionate fire brimstone speech. He's just that kind of person. And, um, he asked me what I thought about her. And I was like, I think she's great. Her rhythm is incredible. Her, she's incredibly creative. She just needs to do this for 10 years. And that's the most important thing because you can see all the skills that you're excited about. And I was talking to Ryan, not her. There's like two or 3,000 women that are amazing at this in Dallas, Texas, that that have this skill set and are good in the way she's good. So she has to consistently be, because I meant it in a way, and I was not clear, and this is my fault forever, was that her her songs were really sophisticated. Mm -hmm. And 
as somebody who does get a little sophisticated from time to time, that's more work. It's fun. I like it. But you have to be consistent like that. If that's part of your brand, that has to be part of your brand for like 10 years. And he took it to mean like she's nothing special is how he received that. And he perpetuated that like really loudly. And I didn't see her perform much after that. And she's happy and married and all that stuff. And I'm sure that's I'm not going to take any autonomy away from her. It's her life, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. But she was incredible. And that is not, I found out later what of what I had said had been pushed on and perpetuated. And it was like, if I had shut up, (laughs) if I had not said anything and just been like, she's amazing. But I was thinking of like, this girl could actually go somewhere where, so just be prepared that this is like, like this old cliche is like every overnight success is 10 years. That sort of thing was what I was trying to get across. And I could have just said that, you know, yeah. to get my point across or not said anything because she was amazing. And like up to that point in my life. But like that was my way of helping people out. Yeah. was like, this is what I know. This is what I've learned. This is the thing that you're going to have to not let get you down. It's like when you run into 100 people they are as talented as you are, don't be discouraged. It's a long road. You know, yeah, and I was not nearly as concise as I am now. I'm not very concise now, but I'm yeah. much more so than I was. So we have a podcast. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> um, exactly that. And I can't help but think because because and I love Ryan. He's great. Like he, I love him. It's just this is comes with him, and I just never saw her any dates or any performances after that. And I can't divorce the two things in my head. You know what I mean? But yeah, there's there's kind of t- two two points. Uh, of which y'all are saying. Um, and, and this is kind of a bit of a, a truism, aphorism, whatever you want to call it, uh, where they talk about it really does take 10,000 hours yeah. to become a professional in something, you know, be considered an expert. So really, for example, a full-time job, you can expect for t- to five years, essentially, to really learn mm-hmm. before you can really say, and, and I'm, I'm thinking in terms of, for example, my IT career, you know, the first five years I was learning. Now, after those 10,000 hours, you know, you're very knowledgeable about certain things and you're still learning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I learned my whole career and continued to learn because it was important because technology changes. But but there really is a period of time that if you want to be a professional, if you want to be considered an expert in a field, you got to put in the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The other point is, uh, to me, music is an innate human trait. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I can remember my grandkids uh, at the youngest age. I mean, I'm talking months old. Boom, 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 striking things in a rhythmic pattern. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, singing even though they couldn't say a word, <laughs> vocalizing yeah. Yeah. along with this rhythmic. And I mean, I'm talking like you know, six months old. Yeah. yeah, and you go throughout history, and for example, they 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 talk about you know, uh, you know the hunter gatherer societies. Oh, you know subsistence, uh, you know, and they were just you know, barely hanging on. Studies I've read over the last few years find that that's not true. You know, they've actually gone in and 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 kind of looked back at it and studied some of these other uh, societies that are still hunter gatherer societies. They spend like 25% of their time actually getting food and, you know, gathering and hunting. And then they spend the majority of their time actually getting together, telling stories, playing music and things like that. And so it, it, to me, music is is part of human nature. Oh, for mm-hmm. sure. And even if it's not something that they they may pursue professionally, you know, we've got that natural rhythm yeah. to a degree and I've always tried to as much as possible, uh, you know, really not push people, you know, push, for example, my, my, uh, my kids, grandkids towards it, but you know, just let them do their thing. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, it was just so important because it is so natural, you know, for us to want to, to make noise, basically yeah. to, to make music, not really noise. I mean, you know, obviously six-year-old beating on a you know, on something and uh, <laughs> it's music know, to them. Most exactly. people consider noise, but you have to kind of look beyond that. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so that's, uh, and, and maybe part of that was that experience that I had that, mm-hmm. that I became kind of the exact opposite. So for example, you know, talk about the open mics, I don't care how badly they did, you know, if you try to be objective about it, 
you know, how, you know, out of tune, whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm like, Hey, you know, good job. And then I'll try to, I'll try to maybe recommend something to them. Mm -hmm. One of the classic problems with open mic, people practice their instrument, whatever that may be, guitar, ukulele, whatever, but they do not practice one of the most important instruments that they also use. And it's not so much they don't practice that instrument because they do, because I I encounter a lot of excellent singers. They do not learn technique, in particular, mic technique. So the the biggest problem I face in an open mic is, I mean, I, I can easily go do a quick line check, get your guitar level up, get your uke level up, you know, mic that instrument that doesn't have a pickup, you know, and get a good sound out of it. But if you get up to that mic and you're too far away from it, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or even if you get close to it, you sing very quietly, you know, and you're singing very quietly, and you can't, what you end up having to do is boost the gain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, any sound system has a limited gain before feedback. And so that's one of the things I do the most is, you know, I'll tell these people, hey, you know, great job, but, you know, why don't you get with, you know, somebody and work on your mic technique a little bit. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, certain regulars, I'll, I'll remind them before they start performing, hey, remember, get in close to that mic and, you know, belt out that song. You, know, you can never be too loud, yeah. <laughs> which is not true because there are some folks, boy, they're like, you know, Big Mama Thornton, you know, they're just like, like, you know, <laughs> where you just blues, turn the mic belters. off. You don't yeah. need it anymore. Which All the fun. other yeah. mics on stage will get her. She's fine. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, 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 that's fine. I'll turn the game down a little bit, yeah. you know, but, but I, I can't, I can only push the mic so far. Right. You know, and so that's, that's the biggest problem I see. Uh, you know, people will, will sit at home and they'll practice their guitar and they'll, they'll sing, but they don't get in front of a mic and they don't learn that technique. You know, when I moved here, uh, the first open mic I did was at Big Bob's Burgers. You know who Xander is? He comes through that open mic. Okay, so he had just started. And I basically saw that he wanted to do this and basically did that whole, like, every week was word vomit. I was just like, you really want to do this? I'm going to tell you everything I've ever learned. And what I noticed with him and everybody since, like, as opposed to saying mic technique, the thing that got it done was just saying practice plugged up practice plugged up because like i've tried to explain that to people for 20 years (laughs) and now i just tell people to practice plugged up get a mic and a speaker and sing on that and it will teach you everything you need to know because then you'll be doing what you want to hear and then that act of that gets rid of all the other problems yeah like i know exactly what you mean this is a (laughs) this is like I'm glad you brought that up. That's awesome. And it kind of goes with, uh, first of all, when you said plugged up, I was like, like practicing singing when you're sick, because that's what I took it. Out. But um, I was like, yeah, that's a good, that's a good skill to be, to have. Too. Yeah, but, I don't know um, when you'll need it. Um, when you're sick and you need to perform. But that goes into something that Brian had mentioned, um, our guest from the last episode, ideally, if we put these in order. His advice for um, anybody who's wanting to to get out there and start going to open mics is to record yourself performing so that you can see what you look like and hear what you sound like. And that's always like the roughest advice for a performer is to record yourself and watch it or, you know, record your voice and play it back. But it's what the audience is going to hear and see. And so I think practicing mic technique, practicing while you're actually in, you know, playing with a sound system or, or, you know, plugged up. Um, and with a speaker, with your pedals or what have you mic'd up and then recording that and seeing what you, you know, evaluating it objectively, I think. Hear what's coming out of that as opposed to what your bones in your head are. Yeah, that's a different story. Well, and the thing is, you know, my job, you know, kind of the the joke is nobody knows what I do until I don't do it. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Now the don't do it normally means feedback. And the thing is, a lot of that is out of my control yeah. in a sense, because, for example, it's someone that's not singing particularly loudly and I'm trying to push the gain as much as I can to get them over the rest of the band. And what you usually end up having to do is basically lower everybody else, mm-hmm. because, again, you do have that limit of how much gain you have you know, before you feedback. So you end up having to basically reduce the level of the rest of the band if they've got a backing band in order to then get the vocals up above that and not have feedback. So it it can be kind of a a bit of a struggle. I do try to be, you know, not really seen and, you know, 
Mm-hmm. I, I do want it to be the performers. Yeah. But sometimes it's, it's, it's difficult. But, you know, you, you, you roll with it. You do the best you can. Yeah. I think this problem will be nearly a thing of the past in the future just because of how easy it is to, like, most people who are starting out now have access to home recording equipment. Like, they've started, like, especially people who are making their own music. And I think that there will come a time where we don't have to worry about this as much because a thousand YouTubers will have said, I can't create something that's not there. <laughs> I can diminish that's something that is that there. That's assuming that they're <laughs> watching those videos. Uh-huh. But, well, because um, I've had the same issue when I was doing sound at my university. There was this band with this uh, front woman who, you know, they all had monitors and stuff. And she kept asking me to turn up her voice in the monitors. Mm-hmm. And I was, I had turned it up as far as it could go at that point. And she was still asking it for it to be higher. I'm like, you got, you got to sing louder. You got to, <laughs> or I'm going to turn, you yeah. know, I have to turn everything else down. Well, she mean, wanted everything like up here and then her voice, you know, way up here. And it's just, that's not, it's not possible. Not. And the reason I say that is just because like, when I started out in open mics, the percentage of people who had that problem was so much higher than what I see now, especially amongst people who are just starting. Like I would see like easily 19 out of 20 people who are doing it. They're just started in the last few months having that problem. And now it's like three or four out of 20. You know what I mean? I just don't see it nearly as much. And I think it's just because the technology to record yourself is so much easier to come by that just by doing it, they realize it's like, oh, there's so much noise because the signal's not healthy enough in relation to that noise. Let me get a healthier signal so that way the noise is quieter. Yeah. And then it's easier to get rid of. And I just think that, that that's gonna be that's gonna become so common knowledge now because now a lot of there's such sophisticated recording technology that you can get downloaded an app yeah, on, on your, your phone. phone and then get a little mixer to plug into it and do what we're doing with all this stuff with mm-hmm. a little thing that's like this big you know i just think that this this con- this will be one less barrier to entry yeah, yeah. fingers and toes crossed yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> you can only let's, hope. <laughs> let's make your job easier <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah fingers yeah. and toes crossed the reason I brought up the the whole, you know, music and being traumatized at a young age <laughs> about music is because you had that experience when you were young and you professionally went on to do something in a field that was not music related, but you still, you know, eventually came back to picking up the guitar and learning how to, you know, learning to play it. And even before that, you started working on sound and like audio engineering and mixing. So it's like you never really left (laughs) you know you 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 were you did get into music it's just not from a performing standpoint which i think when a lot of people think of working in music they think of performing and i think it's i I think beginners often don't realize how many other roles there are involved in putting on a concert or you know recording an album Um, you don't have to be a performer you can still find that love and, and fulfill your passion for music in other ways. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's extremely, I mean, that's absolutely correct. I mean, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. And, you know, quite often, you know, when people will ask, you know, Hey, uh, would you play an instrument? And I'll, I'll say, yes, I, I, I run a mixing board. Yeah. yeah. And without an instrument, we I mean, would all sound it's, awful. It's, yeah. one th- it, it's one thing to have, you know, one performer, but when you have four performers on stage to bring their sound together and to make it a cohesive whole, you know, is a role that, you know, people don't really think about. And because we are kind of we're not really seen, you know, we're not necessarily thanked for our work, yeah. you know, p- publicly. A lot of people don't really you know, think about our role, you know, in, in, in running sound. My experience is that, you know, a lot of musicians will come up afterwards and say, hey, thanks, that sounded great, all that. But they, they, a lot of just people that are watch, you know, listening don't really think about the importance of the sound person, you know, in, in a performance when there's multiple instruments. Uh, you know, because you do have to be attentive to the relationship between the sounds of the different instruments, make sure, and each instrument has different dynamics. So it's not as simple as just setting it to one level, you know, in the case of the open mics, it is literally every new performer that gets up 
I'm doing a line check. I'm going yeah. up and having to make sure the level of their guitar or their uke or whatever is a certain thing, you know, uh, double check their mic level, you know, or they're going to be a quiet singer, you know, mm -hmm. kind of uh, those kinds of thing. And, and so I do, in a sense, consider myself a performer yeah. <laughs> in that respect. Yeah. And that's that's um, healthy. That I'm glad that yeah. you do, because yeah. I feel like every song guy should. Sorry, continue. Like, I'm glad. Well, while he's he's interrupting, I'll jump onto that. Because earlier you said that <laughs> everybody. Well, because earlier you said you don't consider yourself a professional, like a music professional, but you know, you, you are, if you haven't. Yeah, you got a gig, you're getting paid for it. <laughs> well, yeah, you're getting paid for it for one, but um, the ear. Or the, beers and the, taco. <laughs> yeah. Um, it still counts. The, the, ear that, <laughs> the ear that you have to have in order to mix sound well, where people don't notice, you know, that's, that's on par with someone who's performing. Like you have to have just as good an ear, if not, I would say better, but um, you have to have a better ear than musicians because it's a different type of you're you're listening to the frequencies. Yeah. Listening to how yeah, things fit together. Like I don't know how it was for you, but audio one, two, and three, I I had a hard time with normal conversation for like a year because my brain was reorganized. <laughs> <laughs> like it was kind of crazy. I don't know if that's your experience, but like sitting like down and someone's parsing. talking to you and you're like you need to turn up your mids more or um more so like it's always like i always have a thing like in this situation like i'm always reminding myself to like lock into you guys because i hear got the it. street and then the phone and then the air and then the there's like a crazy high pitch sound i that's, haven't figured that's out that's where just it's coming adhd from. Like <laughs> tinnitus yeah <laughs> yeah like no that no, no. too much tinnitus. loud rock and roll i've had tinnitus long enough to, we, to be able to distinguish that that's one. the other thing we all have tinnitus we all have yeah. weird last names yeah. <laughs> all right we yeah but it like i'm sorry we piggyback interrupted you oh, yeah no no, no I, I pretty much finished it it's yeah yeah i you know i i definitely yeah, I guess I was kind of minimizing, you know, my my, uh, my contribution in a sense, calling myself not really a, a performer. But but you know, you're absolutely right. It it is, uh, you know, uh, while for example, somebody in the band, you know, could easily do it. Mm -hmm. uh, it it makes it so much easier if you do have a dedicated mm -hmm. sound yeah. person and and putting together the sound is important. I mean, because you've got instruments that sometimes sit on top of each other. Mm -hmm. And unless you're going in and carving out certain frequencies that they play together or using things like reverb on certain instruments to, to give a, a depth and kind of place the instruments, if you will, in a, in a, in, in a, a position in, in the sound, you can lose a lot. I mean, you know, the classic thing is the kick drum and the bass. You know, where they're basically quite often the frequencies overlap. And unless you carve out a little bit of this and a little, you know, add a little bit of that, you know, they, they compete rather than combine. And so, so there, there is definitely a, a craft, a art. I mean, there's even some science, obviously, to it. Yeah. You know, understanding, you know, the, what, what instruments the frequencies, uh, you know, their fundamentals are. You know, people don't think about, for example, uh, coming back to a, a bass or kick drum. Well, yeah, you have that thump, thump, thump. But you also have the sound of the beater, yep. which is at a higher frequency. Mm -hmm. And that's all part of the sound of the drum. And, and so it, it does take a little bit of craft uh, and a little bit of science to, uh, to understand how to bring you know, those you know, four or five musicians to bring their sound together to make a nice, cohesive, pleasing uh, whole yeah, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. It kind of goes back to like one of the reasons in our first podcast why we started this was to like, and I wanted to say this anyway, just because of you pick up, you know, you're about to pick up the guitar for the first time. And it's like, as long as music, not even as long as music should make you happy. And I'm we're talking to everyone. And if your relationship with music is not making you happy, you need to change it. And I always say that to people who are performing because everybody, there's such a high percentage based on the percentage of people that will actually get famous and do the thing for a living and be known. There's such a high percentage of people that that's their expectation. And then they end up really angry as opposed to like you who obviously love music, just judging on your knowledge of it. 
and the fact that this hobby is such an intense like you know this might be a hobby for you and you don't want to call yourself a professional but your experience and your knowledge of it says otherwise but that's from love of it and it's just like I routinely meet people who have no idea how unhappy they are because their relationship with music is unhealthy. You know, I'm glad you're getting back to the guitar and I'm thrilled to just like, we were not expecting the music history and the, and the, like I was expecting the technological aptitude, but the journey and the story is like speaks of a really deep passion for this. And so your relationship with music is obviously healthy and thriving. And I can only, wish that for everyone (laughs) i also think that um the other one of the other interesting things that i found with um your i was gonna say lecture you were telling us about your (laughs) whole story it wasn't a lecture but it like a master class felt like a master class (laughs) um but the fact that you're drawn to the songwriter circles um at these festivals and the fact that you are running sound for these open mic or for this open mic because i think that the feeling, the atmosphere is the same. This welcoming, collaborative um, event. And it's only fitting that, you know, you you found yourself drawn to these um, writer circles. Yeah. Well, and it, it does come back to what I was referring to earlier, that, that you know, music, I think, is is an innate part of, of human nature and, and how those hunter-gatherer societies would get together, mm-hmm. you know, around the fire and tell stories and play music. And mm-hmm. and to me, the the song circles are are return to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it, it, it is not necessarily, you know, pros in the sense of, uh, you know, professionals that gig on a regular basis and all that. It is largely, uh, while there's definitely a handful of those in, in, in these, in these circles, it's largely people that play for the love of it. And some of them have played and are good enough, uh, that they could be professional if they wanted to. Uh, you know, some of these folks have been playing, uh, well, well, John, the host of, of uh, John Whipple, the host of, uh, of the open mic, incredible yeah. guitarist, incredible singer songwriter, mm-hmm. but he has no desire to, to be a professional musician per se. Yeah. He still does go out and do little gigs every now and then people will ask him mm-hmm. and, uh, what have you, but he, he, uh, you know. You know, he, he just loves music and he's been involved in music in the San Antonio area for, you know, he used to own uh, Music Makers, mm-hmm. you know, which used to be one of the, the biggest, if not the biggest uh, music instrument store in San Antonio at one time. Uh, he had a Tejano label. And so he I produced- I did not know that. Yeah. yeah. He ran a Tejano label for years and uh, produced uh, a lot of records and they won Grammys, you know, but he does not consider himself a, a professional musician now but but he could easily easily be one yeah no he's he got the right be one. he's like, that good i i always talk about him like like i never leave the pig pen open mic not filled with joy that i was there like i never i love that open mic i hope to build this dulce sueños one into like i hope people feel the same one day about mine because i even at my most sad I always leave feeling wanted and appreciated and loving listening to everybody else and meeting everybody else. And that's that's really uh John is uh is probably the most zen person oh, yeah. I know. So I do I, I'm sure he gets upset, but I've never seen him upset. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he does get angry, he's very even tempered and all that, but he has this really great uh, kind of philosophy in particular about the open mic. And that is if you, well, first of all, the Tuesday is structured quite a bit differently than your classic open mic, you know, where people come in and, you know, just sign up and, and then they just go down the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, John has it structured with kind of an opening act where John performs with the San Antonio rhythm section with the the house band as a warm up. Mm-hmm. Then they go into typically 12 slots you can figure roughly 10 minutes because they'll do, perform two songs. So roughly 10 minutes a slot. They'll do about five slots. But then he has a featured artist that performs rather than two songs, performs about five or six songs. So about a 30-minute block. And then he goes into about another six uh, slots. Well, if someone shows up later on, you know, he doesn't limit it just to 12. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He'll go, yeah, I mean, he'll put you at the end of the list. Yeah. And we've had nights where it's 15, 16 people. And rather than seven to 10, we're there seven uh, until 1030, 1045. His philosophy is if you come to play, you will play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I'm not sure 
how happy <laughs> the pig is <laughs> about that sometimes. Yeah. But, you know, uh, John doesn't care. It's like if you've come to perform, you're going to perform and you're go- it's, it's going to be open and it's going to be supported. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's uh, you know, I, I look at things like uh, poetry, poetry readings. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a big difference between a poetry open mic and a poetry slam, yeah. yes. you know, which is a competition. You know, I mean, an open mic has to be a supportive environment because you do have people that are sometimes the very first time they've ever gotten on a stage. And that's the one thing I found about about the Tunes Day and the Tunes Day crowd. They're incredibly supportive of the performers, yeah. you know, and, and John is so good about getting up there and, you know, our, our, our newest friend, yeah, yeah, you know, Joe Smith yeah, 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 yeah. is going to play for us. And, and he, he goes out of his way, you know, to, to make people feel welcome. And, and then those people come back yeah. you know, because they got a great response. Yeah. Maybe they forgot some lyrics. Maybe they, you know, hit some, some, some bad notes, but the crowd doesn't care. You know, the crowd's there to support you, you know, whether it's your first time or your hundredth time. That's awesome. I think that's why it's the longest running open mic in San Antonio. Probably the secret right there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I gather from what you've said that you have never performed at an open mic. I have not. Okay, so we... Well, that, that's so, not totally true. Okay. Oh, okay. okay well, and uh, there's a story to that. I mentioned I was an army brat. Well, uh, we lived in Germany from 74 to 77. The way the dependent schools are structured in Europe, you only have a small number of, of schools spread all over Europe. And quite often you're bussed in from, uh, I mean, some, some of these kids were getting up, you know, five o'clock in the morning to catch a bus to drive two hours into school and then vice versa. You know, sometimes, you know, you would be waiting after school before you know, the buses came and loaded up. And what we used to do is we had a, a stage in the cafeteria and we would have these impromptu talent shows. Basically. Nice. <laughs> and I was kind of like an early weird Al Yankovic. <laughs> I, used to do these, <laughs> I used to do these parody songs. Nice. I would oh write gosh. these parody songs. And so I, I have actually performed on stage doing parody songs with a, a friend accompanying me, like on guitar and stuff. But... But again, it was just just something. It was just a goof. It wasn't mm-hmm. really, you know. Something, hey, that counts. And, and it was just, you know, something to take time and 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 to me, it was to make people laugh. And gotcha. you know. So when you get on to the stage next for your first adult era open mic, what uh, what song do you think you'll perform? Oof! <laughs> wow, that's a good question. Uh, Isn't it though? Look at that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. The one that I've really been thinking that I would like to perform is there's a British folk musician by the name of Roy Harper, and he has a song called Don't You Grieve. And it is basically uh, a song told from the s- viewpoint of Judas Iscariot. And he sings about. You know, all I've got is 20 feet of rope, you know, and uh, it's uh, that's the song I think I'm going to learn and uh, and and probably be one of the first songs I play. And then, of course, there's going to be some standards, you know, a little Roy, bit of Roy Harper, Don't You Grieve. Yeah. You're going to have to tell us when uh, when you plan on playing. Yeah. Send me a text. So then we can we so, can put it out everywhere that uh, <laughs> everyone who's listened to this episode is going to come out and, and see you play. Over. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do it. Nice. I'll do that. Yes. And then our last question, because we're asking, we're asking all of our guests, the first song was you played at an open mic or what the first song will, will be. be. And then what would you put on your last taco? On my last taco? Yes. Very last taco. How do you mean put on it? What would what be kind in of taco? the tortilla? Yeah. In the yeah. tortilla. I, <laughs> I, or on top or the side my, or my thing is uh, al pastor. Uh, tortillas de maíz. It's got to be okay, yeah. al pastor in a corn tortilla, corn. Uh, heavy on some uh, nice hot salsa. Okay. Like the green salsa, the red salsa? Uh, Any yeah, particular? Typically, it's going to be green. Uh, if if there's some habanero base, that's even better. Right. Any other toppings? Any cheese, onions, cilantro? Uh, I'm a little bit of a purist. I kind of am okay. more of a, you know, more of just the filling and, uh, you know. I don't necessarily like, you know, a, a, a hard shell with uh, lettuce and tomatoes <laughs> and sour cream and all that. I, I kind of like, you know, my al pastor or my uh, I have a uh, guilty pleasure of chicharron. 
Okay. Uh, you're just, yeah. man, yeah. my father-in-law. Saying. I was going to say my dad's the same way. <laughs> so, so really just the, just really the tortilla, the filling, and a nice hot salsa. And I'm a happy camper. Very good. All right. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us. We've, this has been, this has been great. really <laughs> awesome, been really, really you know, awesome. unexpected in the best ways. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. Thank and you for having so, me. And um, so our audience can listen to your, your fine audio mixing on Tuesdays at the Pigpen uh, starting at 6 p.m. Right. Right. Uh, seven o'clock. Seven to be seven to ten. Seven to ten. Well, he told me six. So. That's my bad. That's it. You, no you go to you go to this. I do, but lot. I'm never on time. Oh, like, okay. Lena has so climbing. Just, well, that's <laughs> why you. That's why you end up number fourteen on the list. That's just, I'm either number one or number fourteen because no one wants to be first. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Who's Next SATX. If you're looking for an open mic in San Antonio, you can find one Sundays at five o two in the Amp Room. Monday at Fitzgerald's. Tuesday at the Pigpen Bar Ludovine in George's Keep. Wednesday at Dulce Sueños, the Dakota Eastside Ice House, and Blaine's Bar. Thursdays at Hondro's Web House and the St. Anthony Hotel. And Fridays and Saturdays, go support your local artists. For a full list of open mics, please follow Who's Next SATX on Instagram and Facebook or visit whosnextsatx.com. What did one plate say to the other plate? What? Dinner is on me.